0: Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter. We're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 1014. And like he said, uh, I'm not Brett Rogers, obviously. Um, I have more hair. That was, that was cheap. That was cheap. I'm sorry. Brett, if you're watching... That was cheap. It was unnecessary. But uh, we are praying for, for Brett as he, um, as he battles illness. We're praying that he would have a speedy recovery. Um, since he's unavailable today, we called an audible, and I get the privilege to stand before you today. So buckle up. Um, I started preparing this sermon uh, back in October, actually, for a similar moment like this. Um, and back then, I had chose 1 Peter 2. But little did I know in the Lord's providence that it would actually go along with what Brett just preached last week, um, which is, in my mind, the way I see that, is beautiful. And as I look out as your pastor amongst all your faces, I see the trials, the suffering, the tribulation the difficulties, whatever it may be, I, I, I know what a lot of y'all are going through and I prayed and I hope that as we go through this this morning that it is a great encouragement to you today. If you recall last week, we learned that Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected, how He's been made the cornerstone, the one of utmost significance and Matthew's Gospel uses this depiction of Christ as the cornerstone to also convey a message that those standing in opposition to Him will surely be crushed. In our text today, we see similar language, and we see similar elements. However, I think it's also one of the most encouraging and insightful New Testament depictions of what it means to be a Christian. I believe that this text can bring great joy and hope, especially for those who struggle with who they are and what their identity is or the persecution that they are facing. So brothers and sisters, let us go to the Word this morning to be nourished and encouraged. Would you read with me starting in verse 4? As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Amen. If we go back just a little bit into 1 Peter 1, we would see that Peter has referred to a living hope in verse thir- in verse 3. And he also refers to a living Word of God in verse 23. But now, here in chapter 2, verse 4, he says a living stone. And that is kind of a conundrum, right? When we think of stones, we don't often think of them as having life or breath. They don't grow and develop or produce anything for us like vegetation or soil. Stones are lifeless, seemingly dead things. Yet even in their lifelessness, stones are foundational. They are strong for building and development. And Peter portrays Christ here as a living stone. It's a way of portraying Christ in His resurrection from the dead. So it's fitting then for those who come to Him to be brought back from their dead state as well, right? That's why when we respond in submission to Christ, we too are made to now be a living stone. No longer dead or useless, but instead a stone that is to be a part of something so much greater than if we were all alone and left in our dead state. But now, we are living. We are now a part of the foundations of a new spiritual house that God is building up. We've been given a new life, one with new purpose. And in our coming to Him, He makes us new and holy. Our vile and filthy sin is no longer what defines us, but rather we are now defined as precious and chosen like Christ. He is a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, and we too become like him. In verse 5, we see this spiritual house of those who have joined in with Christ, and they are now living stones that make up this new structure God is building when we come to Jesus and confess him as Lord, we're identifying with him as this precious and chosen one of God, unlike those who have rejected him. If you can recall Matthew 16:18, it's on that confession that we first hear from Peter that Jesus says he's going to build his church. Well, we, the church, are the spiritual house, the temple that's being referred to uh, that's being referred to here in which the spirit of God indwells. The beauty of this new creation, this new structure, this church that's happening, is that it's no longer made of expensive gold. It's not made up of precious jewels that will one day fade away. But instead, it's made up of the imperishable beauty of holiness and faith that is displayed in the Christian's life that is gained only through Christ. These qualities reflect the glory of God so much greater than any pearl, any gold, or any jewel could do. Regarding this holy priesthood, if you can recall, the priestly order shown in the Old Testament was preserved only for those from the tribe of Levi. Meaning, only a portion of Israel could carry out the priestly functions. But now, Peter is telling us that all of God's people our priests, meaning all believers now have direct access to God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. As a holy priesthood, it also means that we are called to herald the name of the Lord so all people can join in worship together. As part of a priesthood, we should also recognize our role in offering spiritual sacrifices. And what are those? What are those? Well, Peter spoke generally and comprehensively of all that believers do by the power of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, not any and every sacrifice is pleasing to God, but only those offered through Jesus Christ. It includes the giving of our body the giving of praise and thanks, our worship, our attention, sharing with and loving one another, and making sure that all we do is done unto the glory of God. These are our spiritual sacrifices. In verse 6, Peter then attributes where he's getting some of this language and some of these ideas from. He points us to Isaiah 28.16. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. That's pretty familiar, right? We just heard that. Stone. Chosen. Precious. All words used in verse 5. To understand the metaphor... If you can recall, cornerstones are the first stones that are set during construction. It's it's on these stones that the rest of the building is formed. It's on these stones that the rest of the building is built upon. And Christ is depicted as the one who serves the foundational purpose in God's work in building up His church. So the meaning here cuts deep for all people if you are one who sees Jesus as precious and you respond in faith your whole life will and should be built upon him it's on the cornerstone of Christ that you will stand without shame that you will stand without disappointment both now and in the age to come this is important because those who do align and build upon this cornerstone they may suffer shame, and disgrace here on earth for their obedience to Christ, but they will not suffer that from God. Instead, they are honored and valued by Him for their faith and trust. And how sweet is that in light of persecution? Last week's message showed us that those opposed to Christ will be crushed. And here, we have a similar concept, just Different wording, right? In verses seven and eight, we are reminded once again that those who find Jesus to be lacking or those who find him to be unappealing, they are like the builders who rejected him. And now he is that stone in which they will stumble and fall, both now and the age to come. They stumble because of their disobedience to the word. Well, what is the word? According to chapter 1, Peter tells us, verse 25, it is the good news that was preached. He's speaking about the gospel message of Jesus. And then Colossians 1.20 also tells us that it is through Jesus that God reconciles all things back to Himself. So to disobey the Word... To turn from the gospel message that is presented means to refuse to believe in Jesus Christ. So those who reject Christ as the path to God will stumble over him. Jesus is either the way to God or the obstacle that prevents one from reaching God. But then there's this somewhat confusing statement here in verse 8 as they were destined to do so. The statement seems a little bit trippy when you first read it. It was their own fault for disobeying the word of the Lord. Yet at the same time, they were destined to do so. Hmm. Now some will argue that this is saying God appoints the punishment that is the stumbling only but not the disobedience part, not the offense part. But that misses what Psalm 118.23 is trying to say when it says that it was the Lord's doing that the builders reject the cornerstone. People rejecting Jesus was part of God's plan. In fact, Peter says that much in Acts chapter 2 verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So yes, they were responsible for their present actions. But God sovereignly orchestrated everything according to his good and perfect plan. So why does Peter throw this line in as they were destined to? To do so, I think, brothers and sisters, it is to comfort and assure his readers that the evil in the world, what is happening, is not out of God's control. God still reigns above all, including those who oppose him, including those who oppose his people. He also does it by way of contrast to the mercy he has shown to us. So, why did we as Christians not stumble over Jesus? Well, this is where it gets very encouraging. But you, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So the text, has, the text has transitioned from giving some identity, but now it has gone into what our purpose is. In contrast to those who disobey the Word, the followers of Christ are chosen for another purpose. On this side of the resurrection of Christ, all titles, all privileges, all blessings formerly reserved for ethnic Israel are now freely applied to the New Testament church, the true Israel of God. And Peter shows us four truths that all Christians can take comfort in as they build their lives around the chosen and precious cornerstone. We first we first see the church is a chosen race. And this chosen race has nothing to do with actual ethnicity. This is a race instead that is composed of all ethnicities, all backgrounds, all heritage. It's not defined by color, culture, or history. It's defined by Jesus. This is about the unity. This is about the unity that we now have with one another under the banner of Christ. And we talk about this in our Membership Matters class on inReach. Being a true child of God is not tied to one's ethnicity or class or abilities or heritage. It's tied to one's disposition in Jesus. And we look forward to the day when God would gather into one race, one family of people from all nations because of Jesus' finished work. Folks, this is a greater unifier than any blood relationship here on earth. It supersedes all others. Second, Peter then furthers the priesthood narrative, calling the church a royal priesthood. And this is important because now as Christ followers, we are now priests. We are actively pursuing Him in worship. That's important because when your life is given to God, that isn't the end and we don't just sit on our hands and do nothing. But we continue to give of ourselves to Him and for His glory. Remember the spiritual sacrifices. You don't have to be a Levite to commune with God. You don't have to be a Levite to witness His glory. The altar where sacrifices were laid, that's been replaced by Jesus. It's been replaced by Jesus Christ in the blood that He shed on the cross. So now as believers in Christ, we can witness, we can attest, we can spread His grace and truth as the new mediators to a needy world we're made royal because we're subjected to His dominion. He is Lord of lords and King of kings. Third, we live set apart for Him. Peter calls the church a holy nation. and God also calls His people of Israel a kingdom of priests and a holy nation back in Exodus 19. But here... Peter now extends that to the church, not just Israel, but now the church. First Peter 1 Peter 1.2 calls us sanctified for the obedience of Jesus Christ, meaning we are set apart from all other nations. No other nation or people group or anyone else can claim that title, only the church. The church has been made unique and is set apart only for him. Fourth And finally, the church is called a people for His own possession. We see that in Exodus 19 as well. And while it is true that God does own everything, it's through Christ that He's obtained for Himself a special and uniquely blessed people. A people that He calls His own. Through Christ we are made new and holy to be in communion with Him. We are no longer Outside of the fold, we are brought in. We've been grafted in, adopted as heirs with Christ. Just look at Romans 8. And we now belong to him as his children. So take a moment here for just a second. Think back on your life prior to becoming a Christ follower. What was that like? What was it like living life according to the flesh? And was it truly gratifying? Or was there a constant darkness that clouded every thought and action? Was there any meaning? We once had no identity. We were spiritually ignorant, yet in His great mercy, we see that in verse 10 we were made aware of the marvelous light in Christ and became God's people. If you remember prior to becoming a Christ follower, if you're anything like me, I felt like I didn't belong anywhere. We belong nowhere. To nobody. We were blind, dead in our sin, no way out. But then for nothing that we did, God saw fit to grant His people mercy as they called upon His name. And now we are made royal, holy, and deliberately chosen to Him. that gives me goosebumps. That gives me goosebumps that I am His. If you can recall what that life was like and compare it to what it is like after being able to clearly see him, then your purpose is to continue proclaiming those great miracles to the world so that they too can marvel at him. I I debated on whether or not to include verses 11 and 12 because really they can be a separate sermon on their own. But I think that these two verses help us and they admonish us as we stand here acknowledging the kingdom of Christ and waiting for its arrival. I think it encourages us even more. So let's read that again. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So back in chapter 1, Peter opens up his letter by addressing the elect exiles. He again reminds his readers that they're in exile in verse 17. And then again refers to them as sojourners in exiles here in chapter 2, verse 11. Peter's drawing an important line of connections here for us to see. By calling Christians exiles and sojourners, he's reminding you and he's reminding me that this world is not our home. We have a heavenly citizenship. And as part of God's church that is built on Christ, the cornerstone, we would do well to remember that this world is not our home, it's temporary. It is full of darkness and evil, trials and strife, and we would do well to not take part in it because there is a new creation, a better creation on its way. Because He is our cornerstone, believers have the strength to say no to fleshly passions that belong to this world. We should now remain steadfast in opposition to and flee. From those tempting passions. Look at 2 Timothy 2.22. These passions are what we see in this fallen world. Chapter 2.1 gives us some examples. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. You can add gluttony, slothfulness, drunkenness, lust, greed. These are all desires that mirror a fallen humanity. They mirror a fallen world. They act Contrary to the call that is given to us in the later verses, or back in First 1 Peter 1:14 1, through15, where it says, "As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct." We must not allow such desires to sabotage the devotion of our lives to holiness. Those that remain steadfast in the faith and do not subject themselves to such things are presented as holy without blemish through the work of Christ. When we do so, these acts speak loudly alongside our words to those that are lost around us. Yes, we preach. Yes, we proclaim. But we must also act in according. According to the good news that we've received. And that bears witness to others about Christ, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, which is his return. So I have a couple questions that I'd like to end with here today for us to think about. And I hope that it would bring us some encouragement. First, are we conscious of our current state as sojourners and exiles here on earth? Are we conscious of that? Is that something we think about? Remember when I stated at the beginning of all this, that the text here is for those who call themselves Christians yet still struggle, who are still feeling that persecution and the weight of sin. Maybe you struggle with questions like, what is my identity? What is my purpose? Why is everything a struggle? Why is there sadness, hopelessness? Well, this text reminds us of who we belong to. The answer, you don't belong to this world anymore. Our current state may be as sojourners on this earth, but we are not lost We are not wandering. Look at Ephesians 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Oh, there it is again. Cornerstone structure. There it is again. Strangers, we have a new citizenship. You are now a living stone as part of God's church. Are you aware of that? Does that excite you? Thank you. Maybe I'm not driving it home enough here. Got to get the inflection. Does it excite you? Do you live in such a way? Because... That should give you great joy and hope. So take heart. For if you've placed your faith in Christ, then you belong to His kingdom. And it is in that kingdom that when made full, there will be no more sadness or tears or pain or shame or anything else of that matter. No longer. And if you're still unsure, which I feel like some of you are, if you're still unsure then i'd hope this next question will help you in realizing that great joy and hope and maybe it'll prompt you so the second question to consider here are we actively are we actively helping ourselves to the spiritual resources that god has provided to help us wage and win this war against the silent and subtle promptings of fleshly passion Are we actively using the spiritual resources that God has provided? That kind of sums it up. When you read the rest of this letter, there's a major theme happening. And that's the suffering of the Christian. Just to hit some high points here, right? Peter says that our suffering is hard but temporary. Yet we should find joy as these trials refine and perfect our faith. We see that in chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. He says that God is pleased when we endure through those undeserved trials similar to Christ. Chapter 2, 19 through 25. Our sufferings bring blessing and aids in giving a reasoned defense, and explanation for our hope in Christ. That's chapter 3, 15 through 16. We suffer because we do not join others in their debauchery and will remain blameless before them. That's in chapter 4, 1 through 4. Suffering is inevitable for the Christ follower. Chapter 4.13 God is glorified when we're persecuted for the sake of being Christians. 4.16 Suffering abuse while here on earth is according to God's will. 4.19 But that God will prove faithful in the end. And that when we suffer abuse we're not alone and we can be strengthened knowing there are other brothers and sisters facing the same kinds of challenges. That's in 5 9. So, what about the answer to the question? Are we actively helping ourselves to the spiritual resources that God has provided to help wage and win this war? It's clear we will suffer here on earth, but how do we remain steadfast in the midst of suffering? How do we remain steadfast against fleshly passions that lead to further suffering? Well, God has granted us resources that, along with the work of the Holy Spirit, enables us to remain strong and steadfast in the midst of persecution and temptation. Resources such as His written word. How much time per day are you devoting yourself to His written word? How much time per day are you devoting yourself to understanding and growing to see what the Scriptures have to speak about God and about Jesus and about this world and who we are and what we are in it? What you will find is that the more you do, the easier it will be to turn from temptation, to endure persecution, and to be reminded of the hope in Christ in the midst of the dark seasons you walk through. He's also given us the resource of being able to commune with Him in prayer. Prayer is effective in our lives because God has chosen to use it as a means to bring about His purposes. Prayer can include adoration, confession, thanksgiving. and We should pray according to God's will in all things. This is why it is important to know His Word and be directed by His Spirit when we come before His throne. It is through prayer people and events can change. It stirs the heart of God's people, and it plays a part in aligning them with His sovereign will. For sojourners like us, this helps when we are in the midst of a world that has its own will for us. And God has also given the resource of His church. His church. Both the local and global church belong to Him. And if you subscribe to Christ, you have access to the love, care, support, strengthening, peace, and unity that come from knowing fellow believers in Christ. Together, the church confesses Christ to one another, reminding each other of once being dead stones, but now being made into living stones through our proclamation of Christ. Together, we've determined to model our lives with Christ as the cornerstone of our lives. He is the firm foundation. We just sang about that and is forming the rest of the temple to be added on to. We should see one another as more than just a friend, as more than just an acquaintance that we see on a -a once-a-week basis. We should instead, as His church, see each other as actual brothers and sisters that are part of a newly chosen race. These are the ones that We do life with who are unified in Christ. And Acts 2 shows us the beginning of church life. And it says that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. And to the fellowship. This means we do life together. We break bread with one another. We provide childcare on date nights. We make meals for those who are sick or who just gave birth. We fix our cars and our houses together. We counsel one another. We talk about personal finances. We disciple one another. We pray for one another. We should be doing it all together. Did any of that make you uncomfortable? Because if it did, I would encourage you to rethink how you're viewing those that are sitting in the pews with you today. We should be willing to do those things with one another. The church is an amazing resource that we should all be pouring our love and care into. When we do life by ourselves, it's no wonder that we feel alone when we choose to turn away from making time for Bible studies or care groups or even, even fun meetings like play dates or double dates or basketball on Saturdays, we are neglecting this familial resource that God has surrounded us with. Brothers and sisters, God has placed the church in your life so that when you need a shoulder to cry on, when you just received devastating news, You have one. When you are struggling with a sin, you can be admonished and corrected. When you need help with the plumbing in your house, you got it. The church is there to do life with you and to point you back to Christ in all things. Christ's church is instituted to be a light for you and for the world. And it's through these three resources, His Word, prayer, the church, that we can rightly understand our identity in a world that is constantly telling us what it thinks we should identify with. As Christian sojourners, our identity is not wrapped up in our dream vocation It's not wrapped up in compensation, political affiliation, man's affirmation, but our identity is in the foundation that is in the living stone of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of our faith and God's church. If we're choosing to lay down those resources, if we do not trust in them to keep us in step with His will, then we should be aware, beware the consequences when we give in the fleshly passions but when we do rely on these resources in full then we can live with great hope and joy knowing fully what our identity is and who we belong to and that will aid us in the fight if you do not identify with Christ i do have good news for you though though you presently do not believe Though you presently do not obey his commands and are presently stumbling, there is still hope for you to come to him. When it says in verse 8 that those who stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, this isn't just a condemnation, it's a warning sign. Instead, you still have a great opportunity to accept rather than reject the living stone. Do not, do not let Jesus continue to be that stone of offense over which you stumble. If you identify with and if you claim Christ as your cornerstone, then let this be an exhortation to remember the time of when He called you out of darkness and revealed to you The excellencies in his marvelous light, for you and I have received a great mercy. Do not return to that. Do not return to the ways of the flesh. Remain steadfast in his word, steadfast in prayer, and remain steadfast in the covenant with your church. And in the moments of sadness or darkness, recall that you belong to the King. And he has set you apart. Nothing of this world can come against you. You are chosen. And you are precious. And may that bring joy and courage today. Knowing that you are now God's people. Will you pray with me? Lord, may we confess this to one another as we prepare to come to the table. Lord, we thank you for your word that reminds us of who we are in you. You have chosen us and placed us upon the cornerstone of Christ. May this remind us in the dark moments that you still reign. We have a firm foundation in Christ. May this word guide us now as we interact with one another and the world. May it keep us on the path of righteousness. May it give us light in the darkness. May this gospel be the only thing that we cling to in this life. Amen.